Welcome to Revolutionize Your Retirement Radio, bringing you insights and strategies to help you create a magnificent and fulfilling second half of life. Here's your host, certified professional retirement coach and best-selling author, Dr. Dorian Mincer. I want to welcome everybody to my fourth Tuesday Revolutionize Your Retirement interview with expert series to help you live a fulfilling second half of life. I'm Dory Mincer, owner of Revolutionize Retirement and your host for this series. So Dr. Cynthia Green is a leading expert in the field of brain health. She's a clinical psychologist and founding director of the Memory Enhancement Program at the Mount Sinai Medical Center, where she's currently an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry. She's president of Memory Arts, LLC, and she's CEO of the TBH Brands, the parent company of Total Brain Health, which offers training products and services to improve memory and brain fitness. Core products of Total Brain Health include Total Brain Health Toolkits line, a series of programs in a box designed for use in active aging, fitness, and healthcare centers settings. She's an author of five books on brain health, both on her own and in collaboration with major brands such as Prevention and National Geographic. Her collaboration with National Geographic, Your Best Brain Ever, was named a 2013 Top Guide to Life After 50 by the Wall Street Journal. In addition, she frequently serves as a consultant to companies on memory and brain fitness, companies such as Forest Laboratories, United Healthcare, Life Care, Marbles, and she's a highly regarded keynote speaker for organizational, corporate, and association events. Originally from North Carolina, she lives with her family in northern New Jersey. So, is it okay if I call you Cynthia or Dr. Yes. Green? Which do you prefer? No, Cynthia is fine, okay. and thank you so much okay. for having me on, and thanks to Lynn for making the connection. We've worked together for many years, and I'm thrilled when she suggested it and to have the chance to join you and your guests. Thank you. And I will mention just real quickly that for any of you interested, on the first Tuesday of each month, I have my Boomers and Beyond special interest group, and you can shoot me an email, dorian at dorianmincer.com, if you're interested. The first Tuesday of October, Lynn actually will join the call. We're going to continue the conversation about brain fitness and brain health, and Lynn is going to be part of it and talk about how she's applied it, much of Cynthia's work, to her virtual platform in Second Life. So I just want to invite people who might be interested to come join that call on next week. So I'm so glad that you are all here. And Cynthia, I know you have these wonderful slides. I do want to just start with a question about how did you get interested in this? I always like to start that with my my calls. It's a wonderful question. <laughs> and, I, you know, I was lucky enough, first of all, to be very close to my grandparents, all of them, over the course of my lifetime, and to have my one of my grandmothers until two years ago when she passed away at the age of 102. So that was definitely a, a tremendous influence on me. And I, and as an undergraduate, my college, Smith College, offered one of the few adult development psychology courses, I think, in the country at the time. This is back in the 70s. And there was a professor there who was very interested in later life development. And that really piqued my interest in the field. I went on to get my degree in clinical psychology and to work in the area of dementia, serving in the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine, where I'm still on the faculty. But 
from there really started to be very interested in what we could do to, to prevent dementia, which back then was really a question not much asked. The focus was very much on First, that changes in cognition were an, an inevitable part of the aging process, maybe not developing dementia itself, but certainly things such as changes in ability to recall information like names or directions or conversations. And the sense was there was nothing you could really do about it that would be effective. And there was really very little from the scientific community looking to address what might be preventable or modifiable factors, what kinds of advice we could give to people in terms of the changes they could make on a daily basis that might improve their performance or reduce their dementia risk. So I started at Mount Sinai, the Memory Enhancement Program, being lucky enough to be mentored by Dr. Richard Mose, who was one of the co-directors of the Alzheimer's Center there and had been involved with a study looking at brain training. And from there, we built the Memory Enhancement Program, and, and kind of I, uh, that's, that's where it all began. Wow. That's, that's an interesting, interesting background, and I'm so glad you ended up doing this because you've contributed so much to our field about understanding the brain. So you, you call this the brain age. Why is this the brain age? I like to use that term because I think that in the same way that we look at different periods of time and what they've really changed about the way we see the world, I think right now we are on the cusp of a time where we're really understanding more and more every day about this, if you will, final frontier of human science, and that is the brain, and understanding not only how the brain works and operates, about which we really know less than I think most people are aware. And also, though, what we can do to potentially prevent disease and to treat clinical pathology or injury to the brain. And a lot of that is because over time, really, even, you know, if we date back to the advent of neuroimaging, right? So, some of us on the call might be old enough to remember before there were CAT scans or MRIs or fMRIs, which are functional MRIs, which look at blood flow in the brain during the imaging, or PET scans, which also look dynamically at brain function. You know, before that, we really couldn't put, if you will, a proverbial dipstick into the brain to look at function or pathology or to look at injury. So my field of clinical neuropsychology grew from doing clinical testing, neuropsychological testing, where neuropsychologists tied a particular kind of performance or a deficit in performing, say, something like naming animals on a test to an area of the brain where they thought the damage was. And that's the way we first initially, from a functional perspective, mapped the brain. So there are things like the advent of neuroimaging that kind of started us on this path to better understanding of the brain. And I think that that has just increased exponentially year after year, coupled with things like consumer-driven interest in brain training, the growth of the software industry around brain fitness programs, to national policy and interest in reducing potentially the impact economically and socially of an epidemic of Alzheimer's disease, which has been predicted in the past as the population ages. The World Health Organization has declared dementia a worldwide global health priority 
for example, to, you know, the growth of computer-based models for understanding the kinds of data that we get when we look at the brain. So I just think that it's a time in human existence where we're really having a lot of factors coalesce to really drive a greater understanding of the brain and what the potential is for harnessing both factors for better brain health, for better brain performance, and for treating and preventing disease. That ties right into that idea that, or the research that I'm, I know I've mentioned many times on these calls that, you know, by the time we're 65, it's 30% genetic and about 70% of things we can control. And I think so many of the things, not all of them, but some of them are things that we really can try to enhance and control in terms of our brain. I I know from your slide, oh, go ahead. Yep. No, I was just going to say, and if we could move to the first slide, which I know only some of you can see, but some can on the handout. This is a slide that is from a translational geroscience journal, which means that this is a journal looking to take what is being learned at the bench in the laboratory and bringing it to what we call the bedside, bringing it to people. And what this slide is, is two juxtaposed timelines, one today and one looking ahead in the future to what we're all working towards. And it demonstrates that we have today a period of normal aging with an extended period at the end of life where we see many years potentially of age-related disease prior to death. And what we are all working towards is an optimal longevity lifespan where there is a longer period characterized by good health and vitality and where morbidity and compressed, where disease and decline is compressed. So it will still potentially be experienced, but the many the years for which we are affected and where it affects our quality of life is reduced significantly to towards the end of our lives. And you know that refers to the study that you're talking about, and also you know in terms of understanding the role that cognitive health plays here. Let me just say, cognitive health is everything to optimal aging. So we may think that we just don't want to lose our memory by the end of our lives, but really when we're cognitively well and robust, we are better able to engage in being physically active, being socially connected, being independent on an ongoing basis in our function, and living a vital and successful age, no matter how old we may be chronologically. Keep keep on with it because your slides are so helpful, and I think, I mean, you really are talking about the holistic view of the parts that we can control, and I know that, you know, on that same slide page, you, you go in a little bit more on brain health, so, you know, let me just encourage you to keep going right now. Well, we might as well, it's a good <laughs> yeah. basis to yeah. continue the conversation and to take questions. Yeah, exactly. So, You know, one of the things I always like to remind people, especially professionals, as I speak a lot to professionals, is that we all, when we hear the term brain health, it's not, it doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. So there are many of you who on the call may think when we talk about brain health and hear me use that term, you're thinking physiologically about the health of the brain in the same way that you might, if we're talking about heart health or kidney health, it's the health of the brain as an organ. And that is, at its most elemental, one of the definitions of brain health. However, others hear brain health and they think of the function of the brain. How well does my brain support my everyday performance? How well does it help me, you know, 
maintain my importance at work in terms of being able to keep up and continue to be productive in my work environment? How much does it allow me to function well day to day in terms of managing my transportation and my groceries or doing all the things that I do to be part of my world. So that also, by the way, is a definition of brain health that really speaks to some of the skills that are most challenged as we grow older. So even for some of us who don't develop a serious memory disorder, we start to get worried about our memory around, you know, age maybe 50, something like that. I used to joke in my classes that there's a magic button that goes off in us around 50, whereas our 10-year-old might forget something right? Or our teenager might forget their lunch, they might lose their car keys, but we don't think that they have a memory problem. But if that happens to us at 50, the very same memory lapse, we start to worry that we have a serious memory disorder. So it's those kinds of skills that are challenged by the aging process that have to do with staying sharp day to day, then those relate to function, how smoothly we function and how adept we are at functioning in our environment on a daily basis. Another way to understand brain health is to think about brain health in terms of vitality. How well will my brain support my function every single day of my life to live optimally, kind of going back to that earlier slide. And then finally, many of us think about brain health in terms of prevention, in terms of what can I do to lower my risk for developing a serious memory disorder. So these are really all different ways that are correct right? They all make up brain health, but it's a matter of understanding that it's multifaceted in definition and not one of these things. They certainly all relate to each other, but they are not independent necessarily. They're, they're not independent of each other, and they are the different ways in which someone might characterize brain health. Very importantly on this slide, I want to point out to people that when we're talking about brain health, we're also talking about, for many of us, what we want to get out of it, right? So if I am going to do things that Dr. Green tells me are good for my brain, why am I doing them? I'm not just doing them to be nice, right? I'm not just doing them because I heard them on the show. I'm doing them because I want something. I want to take better care of my brain. And when we think about what we want from engaging in better brain health behaviors, what we want are two things, really. We want to stay sharp every day, and we want to reduce our dementia risk. I have never had anyone say to me, I only want one of these outcomes, right? I want to be sharp day to day, but I don't care if I get dementia down the road. Or conversely, I just don't want to get dementia down the road. How I function day to day is important. And the reason I bring this up is because when we look at the research, and there's a body of research here dating back at least to the early 80s that have cons has considered from many different disciplines what it is we can do to keep our brain healthy, what we see is that there are really multiple paths to preserving brain health. And there's not any one thing that we can do. We really need to engage across a full spectrum of activities that support our wellness. And you can see here at the bottom of this slide, for those of you that can't see it, I have here three of those areas, intellectual engagement, which is what people tend to think of when they think about brain health. So we think about challenging our skills by playing games on the computer or playing board games, or we think about 
participating in activities such as taking up a new instrument or learning a new language to stretch our minds. But also in that category, we have things such as learning new strategies, right? Learning ways to help you remember. In addition, we have physical activities that have demonstrated better cognitive outcomes, such as being physically active and eating a healthy diet, maintaining a healthy weight, as well as different lifestyle factors that we know can challenge cognition, such as certain medications or certain medical conditions. And then finally, there's an area of wellness that people don't often associate with brain health, although they are more and more, which is our social and emotional well-being. And there we see evidence for things from social isolation and loneliness increasing risk for memory loss, all the way to having a better sense of your memory self-efficacy or confidence in your ability to remember. So this is a good chart, and I know those of you who can't see it, I've kind of gone through it pretty carefully, and you can have it in the handouts, but it's a great reminder of what the building blocks are to brain health, in addition to what it is that we really want and how we can get there. And I think it's so important to think about all, you know, those different aspects as the building blocks. So, and I do want to remind people on your, the event page, you can submit questions or comments. Just make sure you put your name and where you're from so that I can integrate those questions for Cynthia. So tell us some about the research evidence. I mean, you mentioned, and, and there has been so much research, and maybe I, I know it's the next slide, and maybe you can share some of the brain training evidence of why it's so important. You know, this to me is the most fascinating part because I've been working in this area since the early 90s, and while there was some evidence at that time for many of the lifestyle factors that I just mentioned and for this multimodal wellness approach for brain training, it really is coming of age, if you will, now. I'm in the process of preparing for a major conference in the middle of October where I'm speaking, I'm giving four presentations, and so I'm kind of inundated right now in really going back and rereading some of these studies and also adding some new studies. And it's really fascinating to see how much is coming out. So one of the things that I would really want to share with your listeners in terms of the more recent research is a study that came out of the Lancet Commission on Cognitive Prevention, Intervention, and Care. And for those who don't know, the Lancet is the leading British medical journal. It's akin to the, the Journal of the American Medical Association here in the United States. And they had com they commissioned a group of researchers to look at all the data on cognitive health. So everything from the issues around prevention, so what we could do to prevent Alzheimer's disease and related dementias, to diagnosis and treatment and treatment for caregivers. So it's a very large paper that looked across really a tremendous amount of research over the past several decades on these topics. And when it came to prevention, which is the area that we're discussing today, they said something really fascinating. And I'll share with you a graphic as well in a moment that they developed to illustrate their findings. But essentially what these experts who were on the commission said was that when they looked at all the data and they looked at on a population-wide basis, 
Okay, so taking different factors looking across the worldwide population, if certain factors were eliminated or, or, or better controlled, to what degree would it lower dementia rates worldwide? And what they found was that there were nine factors that could be modified across our lifespan that could potentially reduce the rate of dementia worldwide by 35%, okay, which is slightly over a third. So imagine that. We could, if we modified these factors on a worldwide basis, potentially reduce the number of people who experience or are diagnosed with dementia by slightly over a third. And that's significant not only from a human point of view, but also from an economic point of view. There are other studies that have suggested that the cost of dementia care worldwide is makes it, I, I hope I get the statistic right, but I think it was about the, would make it on par with the economy of Sweden, right? It, it's, it's a tremendously difficult disease on a personal level, on a community level, and on a societal level. So the, this Lansing Commission study is very significant. The nine factors included, and I'll, I'll just jump down here for those of you that are on so you can see this graphic. It's Unfortunately, it's on the vertical, so it's a little hard to see. They developed a life course pathway for where these factors are in our lifespan and which are modifiable. So the only one on here that's not modifiable is a genetic factor called the APOE4 allele, which is an identified gene known to increase risk for dementia in later life. It accounts for 7% of the variance here, for 7% of what could be changed if that was eradicated. That is genetic, right? So that's not something that we can eradicate. But early childhood education, okay, so providing education worldwide up to age 12, if we did that, the researchers suggest that we could reduce dementia risk by 9% worldwide. So, and that, right, becomes not a personally modifiable factor, but something that is more of a government policy perspective. And so also the going, focus just on the importance of learning and education early right. on. And, and the difference that providing that experience to a child up to the age of 12 makes. Mm. For the future, right. right? And if you go down this chart, I know it is difficult to read, but you hear we see some things for midlife and late life, which are the two clusters that the researchers chose. And this is made, you know, becomes more personally meaningful to us. Things such as hearing loss, hypertension, and obesity, smoking, depression, physical inactivity, social isolation, and diabetes all made their list to varying degrees, but what was interesting to me, having been in the field for so long, is how, le how in terms of the variance, how much lower on this list things like diabetes and hypertension and obesity are, whereas that's something that we tend to emphasize very much in the work that we do in telling people what they can control and modify to lower their risk for dementia. On a worldwide basis, kind of, it gets put in a, a little bit of a different place. But for those of you who have the handouts, this may be a little bit easier to see in print. And if anybody wants the reference to the Lancet Commission article, they can easily reach out. We'd be happy to provide that to you. But this is one of the most interesting studies, I think, to come out in a while 
on the idea of this brain wellness perspective, right? That there are these factors that we can control and modify on a daily basis to improve our cognitive outcome. That's that's really excellent. I, I, just this morning in the New York Times, there, there actually was an article by Jane Brody on the impact of hearing loss and vision loss on cog- cognitive development. So it's kind of Right, right there in front of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I actually didn't I see that one, yeah. but was it on cognitive yeah. development or on dementia? On I should on, run down and get the top. Yeah, yeah, it was on. I think it was on cognitive develop. It was on cognitive development, and ultimately mm-hmm. it d- did talk about dementia. But it was really on cognitive development. Was the idea that as people weren't as, as some of the loss of the senses that people really began to experience more co- feeling more cognitive decline. It ties in, I think, to the social part that you're right. going to be getting to in a moment. Yeah, right. And I think that. When we look at that Lancet study, I don't have that slide up now, but hearing loss accounted for 9% of the potential, you know, kind of variance in dementia rates. And I think many people were surprised by that, but we have done some work in that area in the past and the data is really compelling. And also, as you said, then, you know, from that Brody article, it's true if you think about it. When you start to lose sensory perception, you become socially, it becomes more challenging potentially to be socially engaged. You become more socially isolated, and that is a very significant risk factor for... So we have some other studies here, but the Lancet study is one I really wanted to talk about, and I know we have want to take some time for questions. The FINGER study is a study out of Finland that has been following people at risk from for vascular reasons for developing a dementia. It's an ongoing study. They put people into a training program where they received training in, they got exercise, they got nutritional counseling, they did brain training in groups, and then they also got personalized medical consultations. And what they found is over two years, the individuals who were in the intervention group where they got that, that multimodal training were, did 25% better on the cognitive outcome test than the folks who were in the comparison group. And then as you can see here on the slide, they also had significant improvement across other aspects of cognitive function that supported that, some higher than others. Their speed of processing improved significantly, how quickly they thought, their reasoning and judgment improved, and so did their memory. Memory a little bit less, probably having to do with the kind of training that they did. But that's another very important study, and that's a study that the Scientific American article that's quoted on the slide was referring to, where they, when they said that a gold standard clinical trial provided evidence that diet, exercise, and an active social life can help prevent cognitive decline. And that's really the most important message. And with with the studies, excuse me, have there been aspects of the study that look at if people later in life, even when they're there has been beginning cognitive decline, what what kind of improvements can happen? So that's a great question, and that is the finger study, since it studied people at risk, right? Some of those people had some mild symptoms, if you will. In terms of people who have been diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment or early Alzheimer's disease, those results vary. Certainly there are things that we are learning about lifestyle interventions that seem to promote better functioning 
and to improve quality of life, and in some studies even lengthen, if you will, delay the progression of the disease. However, those are not uniform, and there's not uniform consensus in the field about the impact of those kinds of interventions. So I think, though, you know, many of them carry minimal risk for someone to engage in. So, for example, if someone has a diagnosis, early changes in memory, and they are physically able, there's no downside to them exercising, right? And exercise is one of the interventions that has been shown to potentially delay progression of the disease. Mm-hmm. Well, that's helpful to hear, yeah. And, I mean, there have been, I've seen many studies and even some films about just the, the movement and, and this, I mean, it's tied in with the social part that I think you're going to be getting to, too, of just the connection with other people and moving the body and how that, that really can make a difference, even for people who are in their 80s and 90s and, you know, already. Right. And it's, you know, and a lot of those are very valuable. The issue is that the research, qual, you know, not the quality, but the amount of data that's available is rather limited to make broader statements about their impact on progression of the disease, if that makes sense. So you have a lot of wonderful programs that anecdotally we see a difference, right, in an individual who might be participating in a music program, for example. But And there might be smaller studies of 20 or 100 people who participate in these programs. But in order to really make a statement about delaying or preventing progression, you really need a much larger program and and research program. And those are happening, it sounds like. And and are you doing some of that research yourself? or We are. I just put up, for those of you who are able to see the slides, our model. We call this the Total Brain Health Blueprint. And this is the model that we use in all of our training and programs. And this is a roadmap, we believe, to taking the best of the science that I've shown you and giving people action points at which they can engage in taking that science home. So for you who are listening, these are nine easy action points that you can take to learn from the science and to make the science happen for you in your own daily activities. So we have three pillars here of the Total Brain Health Program. Those are body, mind, and spirit. And within those, nestled under those, are three action points within each. Under body, it's to get regular exercise, to eat a smart diet, which includes eating a Mediterranean-style diet along with maintaining a healthy weight. To live with your brain in mind, which refers to getting enough sleep, not smoking, all those different lifestyle factors that we encounter on a daily basis, managing our medications effectively, managing our medical conditions, things that have been associated with increasing dementia risk or dulling our performance. On the mind side, we have information that we talked about in terms of maintaining those everyday intellectual skills, stretching our mind with ongoing activities that force us to think in ways that are different and challenging, and using memory strategies to help us remember. And then on the spirit side, we have socialization, which we're going to talk about next, right, as well as staying emotionally healthy and taking care of our emotional well-being and having self-efficacy, believing in ourselves and our ability to take care of our brains and to perform well on a daily basis. So, you know, I love sharing our Total Brain Health Blueprint because I think it's a great take-home for people. It kind of summarizes the science as well as what we 
believe very strongly in when it comes to how we can all lead brain-healthy lives. And it really does totally play into the parts that we can control. You know, we can't control it all, but these nine factors are things we really can control so that we just even just age better. Yeah. Feel Mm -hmm. better. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, you asked me about, you know, all of this is based on the research that I presented. We have our own programs called Total Brain Health Toolkits, which you mentioned at the top of the hour, and I'm happy to speak to those and where those classes are available for folks who are interested. They, though, it's important, I just want to share that we are starting to get back pilot data on our own programs, and we're seeing that we do things such as significantly improve people's knowledge about their brains and brain health so that we are effectively empowering people to take better care of their brains. We are improving people's ability to engage in these kinds of lifestyle behaviors. So in one small study that we did, we found that those people going through our brain workout program, that at the end they reported engaging in significantly more of these kinds of behaviors that I'm showing you here in the blueprint than they did before taking the class. And in another study, we found that people taking part in our classes reported fewer depressive symptoms after taking part in our courses. That's great. We'll we'll get to that. Why why don't we talk a little about the social-based brain training? And then I do want to spend some time on the toolkits you have. And also, I mean, I, I know people have some questions about, you know, sort of some of these little brain ex you know brain games that are out mm-hmm. there or you know kind mm-hmm. of but but I do think that this social based brain training is really really important so if you can talk more about that because I think that would be really helpful and then we'll move on to the other so I just finished writing an article for our September newsletter, and I just want to mention we do have a regular newsletter. It goes out quarterly to the public and monthly to professionals who are in a related field. And I wrote the article about this topic, about social engagement as the next hot topic in cognitive health. And while this is something that we've been very interested in for a while, I think that the interest in the impact of social engagement and has been a little bit overshadowed, if you will, by the idea of brain fitness training and computerized models. But when we look at the research and when we consider the impact or, or the benefits of being social to cognition, I think that it's tremendously powerful. And there's now growing calls in the field for paying attention to the benefit of social engagement. So what we have done at Total Brain Health because of our position on the power of social engagement is that we have imbued all of our training with opportunities for socialization, and we'd call it social-based brain training. And so what social-based brain training is, is an intentional use of social engagement to promote cognitive performance and long-term brain vitality. So let's talk about why social-based brain training works or why social engagement matters when it comes to cognition. When we look across all the studies, and even the studies I mentioned to you, like the FINGER study or the studies the the Lancet Commission research is a meta-analysis, right? So they've taken all these studies from the past. But even things such as most of the memory studies that have been done since the mid-'80s, the primary form of delivery of all of that training is group-based training, right? You go and you take a class or you do the training in the class. So the memory enhancement program that we have at Mount Sinai is a group-based 
program. The exception to that is, of course, computer-based models where you buy a software product and you do the training on it alone on your computer. And since that became a prevalent model, one of the things that we started to do was say, well, what else is out there? And we began to look at how training had been done previously and we realized that primarily people have trained in groups when it comes to cognitive training. And when you look at papers that have considered head-to-head individual-based versus collective or group-based training, what they have found is that people who train in groups do up to 50% better when it comes to the outcomes of their training. So that particular number came from a study looking at memory training and training people in memory strategies. And they found that the people who trained together in a group did better, 50% better remembering on tests after the class and the people who trained on their own. Hmm. The the other thing about it's so interesting. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. It, it, it's a little bit. It's very funny because you know a lot of the work we do are in group kinds of settings, either in you know adult libraries or or adult education outreach or you know through senior living communities. So most programs in those settings are in groups. You go and you take a class when you go to the adult school, right? Or you go to the library, you go to hear something or to engage in an art class. You're you're generally with a group of people. So the concept that we would do brain training on our own is relatively new because most of it was done in groups traditionally. And so though for me as a as a and with my expertise in the field I'm not surprised that the training outcomes are better and I'll tell you why in addition to training whatever it is you're learning say you're learning a memory strategy for remembering names in addition to learning that what you're doing when you learn in a group is you're forced to challenge other skills that support memory and you don't have to do that when you play a game on the computer or read a book about memory improvement So when I'm talking to you or, you know, talking to a group of my friends, I have to bring with me the skills that get challenged as we grow older. Those are things such as being able to hold my attention, being able to think quickly, think flexibly, use judgment and reasoning, and remember over the course of the conversation. And without those, I'm lost, right? Without those, I won't be part of what's going on. And those skills are really critical to functioning day-to-day and to maintaining memory performance. So when we are working in a group to learn together, we're bringing those skills with us and we're practicing those skills, even though they may not be the topic that we're studying. Does that make sense? That makes total sense, and it's really helpful to think about. I mean, I, it, it, it makes total sense because it's the focusing in, as you say, the attention, the responding to others. You know, it, it's really fostering social cues as well as the the memory and, and you know, it makes total sense. Yeah. Right. I mean, and then there's thinking other... About people learning. Yeah. I mean, just right. learning and then in general. Other... But yeah, exactly. Ahead. Exactly. Yeah. And then there's other benefits. So we're more likely to do things that we know support our brain health and reduce dementia risk, like take a class, go on a trip, go to see a show, even go out for dinner when we're in the company of other people. It makes us feel better about ourselves. So if I'm sitting in a class and saying, oh, you know, I have so much trouble remembering my grocery list, and someone says, you know, I have the same problem, 
right? I always forget my grocery list in the car. And then a third person says, you know, I learned this great trick to help me remember my grocery list. So you were getting a lot of peer support and peer leadership in those classes or in working together or even in being together that we don't, when we are studying something like this individually or, or more isolated or alone in general, we can feel better about ourselves. So I can say, oh, well, she also forgets her grocery list. I guess I'm not that bad, right? And very importantly, it reduces rates of loneliness, isolation, and emotional distress. Loneliness is a leading cause of and decline and I don't want to call it unsuccessful aging, but difficulties in the aging process. There was a recent recommendation by an organization called the Global Council on Brain Health that they did a an overview called the Brain and Social Connectedness, and they recommend that you know social engagement be a top priority in terms of maintaining brain health. So there's a lot here to unpack, but we believe very strongly that social engagement tremendously matters to not only our ongoing brain health, but to successful aging. And so one of the things that we've done is kind of taken opportunities for brain training and created a social basis, a social way of doing it, or not really created, but highlighted, right? Because it was clearly there before. But many people got the sense that they had to do brain training on the computer right? That if they weren't downloading an app and playing a game that was electronic, that it wasn't really giving them what they needed. And I think that this latest data calls that to question. Mm-hmm. Well, and it also, I mean, just thinking about the things you've saying, it, it ties back to what you were saying before, too. When I think about, you know, people who are losing, like, their hearing or their vision and how it often creates people not wanting to then be involved socially with others. And so it just becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. And let me just share with you from an AARP study that looked at the relationship between social engagement and brain health. This is a survey in people 40 and over because the AARP membership gets younger every time they do research. But this is very telling because on this slide, what we're seeing is here the report of kind of the number of people in someone's social network and how they rate their brain health. And what we see is that the higher they their social network, the larger their social network, the more likely they are to rate their brain health as higher. And then conversely, in this slide, this is also from the same survey, they took different aspects of cognitive ability and asked people over the past five years if they're, how they've performed along these different areas of cognitive ability. So everything from ability to focus to decision making, problem solving. And what they found was of those who were dissatisfied with their level of social engagement, they, over half of them said their ability to remember things had decreased. And they were much more likely to say overall that their cognitive abilities had decreased in the last five years. Right? During so that, is even further evidence that not only do we see it from the research in terms of what difference it makes to train with groups, to be with other people, not only do we see it that people self-report that their brain health is better if they happen to have more people in their social network, but people are also telling us that who have lower levels of social engagement, that they're less happy with their cognitive performance. Really important information. Yeah, I want to integrate a couple of 
questions from people now. And I do want to encourage others of you to submit questions if you have them, although I'm cognizant of the time too, and I want to make sure we talk about the toolkits and courses and stuff. So Michelle from, wait, let me just get to the first one. So Mary from Newburgh says, I'm the youngest of five with 13 years age difference. My siblings remain intelligent, fully functioning, and inspire me with their aging. I feel secure in aging gracefully because of their excellent brain health. Is this a good way to look at it, or should I be worried since they're all in good health and maybe I'll be the one with the risk of dementia? So that's a really interesting question, and I think that as we saw from the Lancet Commission report, genetics don't play that much of a role, but, you know, one of the things that can happen is if you're leading a lifestyle, if you were raised in the same environment and you were leading a lifestyle akin to your siblings, right, so we tend to be imbued with the same health values, more or less, then, you know, it's really, as as you had said it earlier, it's about, you know, 70% about how you live. And I think that there's a lot here that we have to modify and to control in terms of how well, we can take care of our brains. There's not a guarantee, right? There's never a guarantee. Right. So let me ask, there's two questions from Michelle, who's from Boston. One of them is, what signs should trigger an assessment? If a doctor gives an older person an MMSEA, how relevant is that number? How does medications, nutrition, dehydration, et cetera, affect that number? What should a caregiver ask? So that's a great question, Michelle. Thank you. The scale she's referring to is called the Mini Mental State Exam. The A is for abbreviated. And that is a scale that's a quick screening measure used in many medical offices, generally by a neurologist or a psychiatrist in particular, when there is a question of a change in cognition. So what kind of changes to look for, you know, that is a great question to ask. And from a caregiver's perspective, I think that the most significant thing to look for are changes in cognition that impact functioning, right? So we, you know, I'll give you a great example. My mother and I were talking on the phone. I hope she doesn't listen to this recording because I don't want to get in trouble. But we were talking on the phone and I had, you know, I was talking on on remote, right, by speaker in the car and she asked me where I was headed and I told her where I was going. And then about five minutes or ten minutes in the conversation, she said, so where, where are you doing? Where are you going? And I said, mom. <laughs> I just told you where I was going. Don't you remember? And she said, oh, right. You're going up. I was going to pick up my daughter. So that was an attentional problem, right? So, you know, with a with a true memory problem, the information wouldn't have been taken in. She wouldn't have been able to learn that information. That exchange just showed me she wasn't really paying attention to what I told her where I was going. At, or, you know, in the, at the moment she was distracted and, you know, just thought to ask the question. So it's really that kind of qualitative difference in terms of whether the, what the memory loss is and then how it affects someone's ability to function day to day. So are they having a really difficult time, for example, with their finances? Can they not balance their checkbook? Are they forgetting to pay bills? When you go into their home, is it a state of disarray that had never been previously in terms of their ability to manage, you know, taking care of things around the house? Are people getting lost in managing transportation or in managing things that are multi-step kinds of activities? So that's one of the things to look for significantly. The other are a 
significant change in their a short-term memory, right, their inability to remember things that you, they're told to follow conversation and that kind of thing, where those changes are steady or kind of getting slightly worse over six months, right? So it's not something you could see that kind of change if someone is undergoing, say, a significant trauma, a loss, a move, for example, that might not be traumatic but might be disruptive. You might see some mild changes in somebody when they're distracted, but you want, you know, where there's some consistent change that's troubling or or worrisome and where it's noticeable to you as the caregiver. In terms of the mini mental state exam, that is something I really can't answer. There are cutoffs that doctors use. It depends, though, on so many different factors in terms of their overall health, in terms of language and education and those kinds of things. So the one thing I will say in closing on this topic for Michelle's question is I believe it's always better to get evaluated because you there are so many different things that can cause changes in cognition. You have to think of it like a symptom. It's not in and of itself a disease. And many of those are, some of them are reversible once the underlying disease is treated. So it's very important to get evaluated. Great. Now there's another question from Michelle too. Let me just, so she just wonders also, is there any research on brain health and the activities of daily living, such as taking care of personal care, dressing, et cetera, and cognition and how someone can be trained to maintain their daily functioning and safety? So I guess that's really a question more in terms of for people who have a diagnosis. Is that how you're understanding Mm. that question? It does sound that way, where there's been at least some diminishment of of, right. of activities of daily functioning, and is there any way to help people maintain and or perhaps improve? Is that I think that there, there certainly has been. It's not my area that I focus on on a day, on a regular basis, but there is work such as the work of a researcher by the name of Cameron Camp. C-A-M-P, who did some very important work in an area called spaced retrieval training, which looked at ways of teaching people who have a diagnosis to learn a new task. So, you know, the the challenge with someone who has Alzheimer's disease, for example, is that it's not that there's an incapacity to learn, it's that the encoding process for learning is greatly extended. So one of the things Dr. Camp and colleagues have done is look at training over time and extending the time period between when someone is asked to do something or, or shown how to do something and then prompted to do it. And they've shown that people can learn, and that would apply to activities of daily living as well. The thing with activities of daily living, of course, is to ensure someone's safety, right? Right. So a lot of those tasks like cooking or bathing, you want to make sure that someone is safe and that can be difficult with someone with a diagnosis of dementia at the moderate to later stages without some kind of oversight. There are other comments, but I think because of time, I mean, people are really liking your examples and liking what you've been saying, so I'm not going to go into all of those. So I know people both want to know about does brain fitness software really work, and I think you've spoken some about, you know, just being on a computer versus the social interaction, but maybe you can comment on that and then kind of into your work about the toolkits and stuff like that. So, great. So, you know, it's not that those programs don't work. It's that they were touted as a be-all and end-all solution to brain fitness. So if you think about the Total Brain Health Blueprint, which I had shared, then 
you can see that when you look at this kind of model, there is a place for those kinds of products under sharpening skills. Sharpening skills can best be done in playing things against the clock, and those brain fitness software programs are great for keeping the skills that we need to function well on a daily basis intact and, and healthy. They don't prevent dementia. The largest company out there was sued by the Federal Trade Commission for false advertising and overstating claims that their company, that their product could reduce dementia risk. Really, a lot of the companies were guilty of that, but they were the ones who were named in the suit and they settled with the FTC on that case. So you need to keep in mind what they're good for. And they can be expensive and time-consuming, so also keep in mind that you will get a lot of bang for your buck by going out for a brisk walk with friends and discussing a good book. In terms of our programs, just to let everyone know, we have the Total Brain Health Toolkit courses. They are in about 100 locations across the country at this point. Many of them are in active aging communities. These are classes, though, that can be taught by anyone in a setting, in a fitness setting, in an adult outreach setting, in a library, or through your local township. So these are courses on brain health called Total Brain Health Brain Workout. We have two series. The second one is the next level up and offers a personal challenge in addition. And our memory class, which is highly popular, and that next level memory class is coming out this fall. In addition to a fair, which is a large event, it's great for an organization or association looking to do some kind of large event program that includes a speaker or a panel as a kickoff, and then brain health stations where people can go around and really experience these different things that we talked about that can help keep our brains healthy. And then I'll just put up my contact information here. Great. And maybe just say it, too, for those that aren't. I mean, they'll get it when they get the handouts and everything. But if you could yep. just mention your website. Absolutely. So our website is TotalBrainHealth.com. And let me also mention to you that we have a Facebook page, Total Brain Health. And if you are interested in learning more, I strongly suggest that you sign up for our Facebook page. We post there frequently and also we'll be rolling out over the next several months some classes that you can sign up for and take with us directly through Facebook. So if you you know, liked what you heard today and you want to learn more about taking care of your brain, but you don't think that you can get to one of the toolkit classes, go ahead and sign up on Facebook because that way you'll know when we're going to be doing these things directly and we'd love to have you sign up for the class. And what about signing up for your newsletter? What's the best way to do that? Is it just So the best the way to do that is through the website. When you go to the website, there's a place there to sign up for the newsletter. Great. And let me make one other comment and then I want you to do your takeaway, but Lynn did share in regard to Bell's question too. She said that the National Center for Creative Aging has created a series of free videos that caregivers can use with mild cognitive impairment and, and more, and it's focused on social engagement. I've seen that myself, and it's, it's a, it's a good resource to, to share with you, Michelle, and to share with all the other listeners too. And it's to share with me, so and, thank you. Cause and to share with you <laughs> I too. I talk to yeah. Lynn about once a month, but that's never come up, and those are kind of yeah. things that we okay. also love to share through our own website and newsletters. Great. Good. So it's a win-win for everybody on that. Yeah. So I, I want to respect the time, and I know you said you have to get off right at one, and it is just one. Any, just thank you so much. I mean, it, you just have a wealth of information. I wish we had much more time, but 
what would be your final kind of takeaway for people? Any final comments that you'd like to make before we have to say goodbye? Yes, thank you. And thank you for having me on. It's really been a pleasure to have a chance to speak with you and all of the folks participating. I would say that my final message is that taking care of your brain health is not rocket science. It's really practical. It's things that you probably already know how to do, and you just need to do a few other things or try to do some things more. So I welcome you to, you know, stay in touch with us at Total Brain Health because we share this kind of information and are always there to update the science for you. But, you know, pick a few things that are on that blueprint. Pick one or two things to focus on that you will commit to doing today to take better care of your brain. That sounds like very good advice, and let's hope that we all can kind of set kind of one one or two goals to add each day to keep our brains healthy and active and just to take care of ourselves totally, I think, because you're really talking about how it's mind, body, and spirit. So thank you all for being here, and Cynthia, thank you so much for being here and sharing so much of your wisdom and work. Thank you. Thank you. It's been really a pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity, and it's been great to speak with everybody. Great. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Revolutionize Your Retirement Radio with Dr. Dorian Mincer. To learn more about the resources mentioned on today's show, listen to past episodes, or download our free retirement transition guide, visit revolutionizeyourretirementradio.com.